Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Let me start with some NBA. I'm going to be real. I thought that the Heat-Celtics series was over after Game 5. In fact, I even said as much right here. Miami was done. D-U-N. Done. 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 Now I'm done. So now I'm done. Now they're done. Done. So, I'm as surprised as anybody to be starting the show today talking about Miami. And I'm most definitely stunned to be talking about this. Smart right-hand dribble, attacks the paint, pump fake, forces it up, off the glass, no good. Rebound Butler, Miami with the ball, down by two, 19 seconds to go, Butler for three, short, rebound, Jalen taps it to Al Horford, Miami has to foul, Marcus Smart gets mugged across half court, and the clock stops with 11.4 to go in game seven. Jimmy Butler had it on his fingertips, he had an open three for the lead, and a shot and a moment that will be replayed forever. Saw the shot hit the rim. The Celtics grabbed the rebound and now are free throws away from the NBA Finals. Celtics radio with that call. So, if you're like most people, you probably saw Butler pull up on that break with less than 20 seconds left down two and thought, why take that shot? What are you doing? That's not what he does. That's not his game. Jacking it up from beyond the arc. Did he panic? Did he freak out? Did he lose all composure at the worst possible time? You know the argument, like, as great as Butler is, he should not be taking that shot in that situation. That's not what he does. Risk versus reward. And the risk outweighs the reward. In fact, by a lot. Miss that shot, and the game is pretty much over, and the season is over. Miss that shot, and you're handing it to Boston. That guy can't take that shot in that situation. That's the argument. You know, he's not a great three-point shooter. You're at home. Game seven. You're down two. Take it to the rack. Attack the basket. Draw contact. Get the bucket. Or get fouled. Or get the bucket and get fouled. You're Jimmy Butler. You can take Al Horford off the dribble. You're Jimmy Butler. You're a monster finishing around the basket. Go hard to the paint. Draw contact. Worst case scenario is you do what you've been doing all game long. You make your free throws, and then the game is tied, or you have the lead. Or attack the paint, kick it out to a teammate for an open look. Besides, even if you do hit that shot, you're only up by one. And there's still plenty of time for Boston to retake that lead. So this is the argument. Argument is, the hell is Jimmy Butler thinking or doing? Here's my response to that argument. I'll tell you exactly what he was doing. Being Jimmy Butler. He was being the guy who carried the heat through game six. The guy who willed them to the final minute of game seven. The dude who is the face of the franchise. He was being the keeper of the culture. He was being the guy who put them on his back in the finals two years ago. He was doing what he always has done. Battling, grinding, and competing his ass off. You live and die with this cat because you're not even anywhere near this situation without this cat. Nowhere near here. That's just how it is. If that guy wants to take that shot in that moment, you let it fly. Not the right basketball play? Not the right basketball play. You want to know what the right basketball play is in that situation, especially if you're the Miami Heat? The right basketball play 
is whatever the hell Jimmy Butler says it is. That's the right basketball play. I have no issue at all with this guy jacking up that three in that situation, even if that's not what he does. Because in that situation, what I want most of all is for Jimmy Butler to be Jimmy Butler. And so does Jimmy Butler. My thought process was go for the win, which I did. Missed a shot, but uh, I'm taking that shot. Um, My teammates like the shot that I took, so I'm living with it. That's it. Exactly. My, I'm taking that shot. My teammates like me taking that shot. What he didn't add was his coach likes him taking that shot. And so do I. So the rest of you better do the same. Do not come in here and Monday morning quarterback this on a Tuesday. Yeah, I get it. He's not Steph Curry. He's not Steph Curry. And that pull-up transition three is not necessarily his shot. Although he did make one earlier in the game. But it's not about that. It's about mindset. It's about attitude. It's about not playing it safe. Guy's playing hurt. He's busted the hell up. He knew they were not going to win in overtime. He wasn't playing for the tie. He had to go for the kill. He went for the kill. He went for the win. He went all in. And yes, I'm well aware of the stats. I'm well aware of the analytics. I know everything about that play. I know that was not the best basketball play. I just don't care. He played 48 minutes on Sunday after playing 46 minutes on Friday on one leg. He's busted up. He's the guy also who did this to ice game six. Right side of the stanchion. Max gets it right into Jimmy Smith. Fires for three. Jimmy Butler has lost his mind. He gets pulled in two, even though I thought he caught it right behind the line. A toe must have been on it. So... 107, 101. All right, so you're going to see that shot, and then you're going to tell him, hey, hey, Jimmy, don't take a three late in game seven. No, no, Jimmy, you make the smart basketball play. You see that shot in game six, and you want this guy to drive to the rack in game seven and kick it back out to Max Struess? Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, his head coach seemed pretty good with it. Good, clean look. It's definitely better than anything that we could have designed, and it's just a shame that it didn't end that way. That, that right there is one of the best coaches in the NBA. One of the best coaches in the NBA. One of the best tactical creative minds in the NBA. And he just said, we could not have designed a better play than that. So my feeling is this. You're entitled to your take unless your take is that Butler cost them that game. Then you're not entitled to your take because that's an all-time horrible take. Make that shot. And he's an absolute legend. It would have been one of the best moments ever. Game 7, conference finals, at home, on a busted stick, burying that shot to take the lead. I mean, that would have been right up there with Ray Allen's shot against San Antonio. Again, Spolstra himself said, I'm fine with that because it would have been one of the best stories ever. I thought it would have been an incredible storyline, you know, Jimmy to, to pull up and hit that three. And I thought it was, I love that about Jimmy. That was the right the right look and I just thought as it was leaving his hand I thought for sure that was going down and by the way didn't we all didn't we all didn't everybody think that was going down be honest when he let that go you thought that was going in admit it you knew it was going in so did he so did everybody which is why he took that shot in the first place and why he was right to take that shot I'm gonna tell you something I mean yes I love the guy 
but he could have won the ECF MVP, and I would not have had an issue with that. Sorry to disappoint you, Heat fan, but them's the breaks. You live and die with buckets. The Heat know that. Like I said, keeper of the culture. The Heat know that. Teams like the Sixers and T-Wolves wish they know that or knew that. I'm fine with it. Absolutely fine with it. Remember back in the day, not to bring the GM into this whole thing, but remember back in the day when everybody used to kill the GM for, quote, making the right basketball play instead of taking the shot? Probably the same people saying right now that Jimmy Butler should have, quote, made the right basketball play. I'm telling you, on that team, in that situation, the right basketball play is him jacking it up in transition. Just didn't go down. Didn't go down, but they would not have been there without him. Oh, yeah, I love that sound. It makes me smile. It does make me happy because that is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources that were once reserved for big business. That way, upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and then effortlessly stay informed. Hey, believe me, I know where this podcast started. I know what we used to try to sell. I know where we are right now, and I know what we sell right now. Shopify has everything to do with that. In other words, like mine, Shopify powers over millions of businesses, millions from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is possibility, powered by Shopify. You know what? Find out for yourself. Try it out for yourself. Go to shopify.com slash R-O-M-E, Rome, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Again, try it out for yourself. Take it for a test drive. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Rome right now. Shopify.com slash R-O-M-E. He is Chris Haynes. Chris, what's going on? How are you? Romy Rome is always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's always good to have you, man. Thank you very much. So I want to get into a piece on Ime Adoka in a moment. But first, let's go back to Game 7. Since I did not work on the show yesterday, Chris, I opened up with my thoughts on Jimmy Butler pulling up for that transition three. I'm curious, where do you come out on this? What went through your head when you saw him pull up for that shot? Um, you could kind of tell he was getting ready for it, just the way he was going in transition, kind of hesitated. Um, you were kind of wondering if he was, like, hesitating to kind of draw out Halford to come up and bite to set up the penetration to the hole. But, look, at the end of the day, this this the way I look at it. Jimmy was the only one who pretty much had it going offensively all series long. Uh, he, he he was coming through for them in that game. You know, that they had to withstand, like, three or four different, like, double-digit deficits to try to get themselves back in the game. And Jimmy Butler was a, a, big, a big reason why they were able to do so. So I had no problem with him at all in taking that three. Now, what I would what I, – to try to – give people a perspective on why he did. I mean, they have they had trouble all series long scoring the basketball. They had trouble. And Jimmy Butler pretty much was the only one 
able to get his own shot. And so I looked at it in that situation with a minute or so left in the game. Um, I think they Jimmy felt like they had to get the lead because you just wasn't going to beat Boston in a shootout because Boston had two creators and they had role players who were stepping up. So I can't fault Jimmy for taking that shot towards the end. I felt like he he felt like they had to get on top to try to get an advantage because they, they had probably scoring the ball all series long. I see it the same way. They were not going to win that game in overtime. He went for the kill shot. I've got no problem with it. And if not him, then who? So uh, to me, he did. I'm fine with it, no matter what the analytics say. Chris Haynes joining us right now. So I mentioned, Chris, you've got a great piece up on Yahoo right now with Ime Adoku. And the team was below 500 on January 22nd. Now they're in the NBA Finals. How do you explain the turnaround? And then how much credit does the coach get? Well, you know, the turnaround, they had a lot of guys in and out of safety protocol. Um, there were some injuries. Uh, you know, so the, the team, the whole team wasn't whole in order to get out there and play well. And then, you know, M.A. Doka, like, just being around him for the last three weeks, like, I get why guys like playing for him. Like, he's a confident dude. He's a real confident dude. And he is confrontational at times. I think if you, if you look at him, you would think that he's not confrontational. But, you know, when I was working the sidelines, I would, you know, be in, I would look down at the, um, excuse me, I would, I would be looking at some of their huddles, um, you know, through the, throughout the course of the season. And I would see him getting into guys, you know, grill and, and challenging them. And sometimes, you know, like one time, one time in the playoffs, when Grant Williams would, would jaw back at him. Uh, but at the end of it, they were all cool. Like, you know, like that's just the way they communicate. But people have a, a found respect for him just because he played the game, played in the NBA. He was a journeyman, so he had to work for everything he had. And so, you know, they respect that. And, you know, he, he's already established himself as being one of the top five uh, defensive coaches we have in this league, man. So I, I've been surprised with the way he's been able to just ride the troops, you know, this fast. But, you know, you look at his history, his background, you know, he's he's spent seven seasons as an assistant with the Spurs. He spent the season with Doc Rivers. He spent the year with the Brooklyn Nets. So he's ready for this moment. You know, he t- told me that, look, I felt like I've been ready a long time ago. And he kind of mentioned the, the teams that he came in second to. Uh, to get their head coaching job, which was Cleveland, Indiana, and Detroit. So this is a guy who still is a fiery competitor. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you know how he's going to get his guys prepared for Golden State. You know, so obviously a great, great hire by them. Chris Haynes joining us. It seems like, Chris, in the past that – the move for teams that needed a head coach has been to go to a guy who already has head coaching experience because it's a safer move, right? Guys will cover their own backside. But when you look at guys like Udoka and Willie Green and some other first-time head coaches, the perception clearly is changing. The Lakers have taken a shot with Darvin Ham. What is your reaction to that hire? Do you like that? Yeah, I like the hire. Um, obviously, I think you know when they Lakers first let go of Frank Vogel, we kind of was thinking that the Lakers will bring in an established guy. You know, most people will call him, you know, a retread. But when you're talking about a Lakers team that is expecting to win now, you've got LeBron James, you've got to try to maximize every single day of his prime. You would think that they need a guy with a proven record, somebody who can challenge LeBron. There's not many coaches that can challenge LeBron. You know, I was covering, I was a beat writer for the Cavaliers when, 
David Blatt was brought on. And even though he had all this international coaching success, he didn't have LeBron's ear. You know, I, there was just a lot of uh, a lot of different situations that I saw play out where I saw LeBron just just tune them out. And, you know, it wasn't just LeBron; it was everybody else. And so I thought there was going to be a coach with some cachet. But to your point, Jim, you look at the success that a lot of these first-year coaches are having, and I want to point out as well, like this is the I believe I believe half of the league consists of a black head coach, which is the most of any period in the NBA. And so uh, there's always been a call for more diversity when it comes to the head coaching ranks. And so these coaches are proving that, you know, not only are they qualified, but they, they can do the job. And so with Darvin Ham, he's somebody that's been waiting for a while. He's definitely going to have the voice. Uh, he's definitely going to have the ear, excuse me, of uh, the big stars, and Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And now it's going to be up to see if uh, if he can produce because uh, he's stepping into a sim- – it's not – well, Darvin Ham is stepping into a tougher situation than Boston because Boston, we knew they were on the cusp of something, but – I don't think anybody thought this was a championship contending team. Lakers, championship or bust. So it's going to be a little bit tougher for Dar. No doubt. Chris Haynes joining us. All right, so back to the Celtics. Chris, they've won a pair of Game 7s during this playoff run. What is your sense as to what that's done for the confidence of this team? Not just that, Jim. You look at their playoff run, you can arguably say they had the toughest run. I mean, look, they had to take down Kyrie and KD first round. They had to take down Giannis in the second round. And I know Milwaukee didn't have Chris Middleton, but that's still a team coming off of a championship year. They got the championship experience and pedigree, so you knew they were going to be a tough out. And then you take out who was arguably the hottest player in the playoffs in Jimmy Butler. And so they're prepared. They're, they're well prepared. Now, I will say this, Jim, Golden State is a different beast. Like, Golden, they, those matchups, Milwaukee – um, Brooklyn and Miami, they don't they don't play the way Golden State plays. You know, with the ball movement, just the fast paced oriented offense. Um, so it's going to be a little bit different. But this guy, this team in the Boston Celtics, have shown that they can withstand the test of time and go through uh, different degrees of just physical play, whether it's um, whether it's half court whether it's transition, like they, they got a defense. And Coach Emile Doka told me their defense travels. So their defense is going to be there Thursday, game one. Uh, but, again, I, I, want to, I want to see how it's going to pair with that fast-paced Golden State offense. Right. I was going to say, Chris, and one last thought. Break that down really quickly. So Golden State has not seen a defense like this. I agree with him. The defense does travel. They rotate like crazy. I mean, they're so committed on the defensive side of the ball. If you're Golden State, what are you looking to do against Boston in order to give yourself the best chance offensively? You're going to, If you're Golden State, you're going to – like, this, this is going to be two different styles of basketball. And – each team is going to try to impose their will and may the best team win. That's why, Jim, like that Boston-Miami series, like it wasn't the best series to watch. Like it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't good basketball. Like you had to be like a real diehard um, NBA fan, basketball fan, or just a fan of one of those two teams to really enjoy it because those teams, they muck it up. It's ugly team scoring in the, the 90s, 80s, and sometimes lower than that. And so for Golden State, 
they want to see if they can get out run, if they can get guys confused on the defensive end with the, their passing, um, the way they bait you into a certain action and, and go in a totally different direction and score that way. And so, you know, that's the way Golden State is going to try to play. Like, at this point, no team is going to show you really anything new. There's not going to be any wrinkles. It's just it's going to be a matter of can each team impose their will. And Boston, for, for this, it's going to be on the defensive end. But Boston does have two players that can break the defense down. But they also, this is also a Boston team that turns the ball, ball over a lot. And they definitely did in the Miami series. And if you do that against Golden State, they're going to turn those into quick two points and go to state, turn it into quick three points. And so, you know, like I'm interested in seeing like which team is going to be able to pose their will. These are definitely two different ball clubs. Fascinating matchup. Golden State, the favorite to go into the series. A senior NBA insider for Yahoo Sports, a TNT sideline reporter, host of the Posted Up with Chris Haynes podcast. He is Chris Haynes. Chris, appreciate you. Great to have you back. Thanks so much. Rome, anytime. Take care, brother. Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a thousand locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and same or next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. Tommy Pham is not to be trifled with, even if it's with trifling things. Like, I'm already on the wrong side of the guy. Like, there's nothing trifling about that to him. But this is what we know about this guy. This dude is tough. This dude, I mean, this, that's a fact. This is a bad ass. This guy was stabbed at a strip club a few years back and needed 200 stitches to close the wound. That's how tough this guy is. Like, he probably was looking at the guy like, that's all you got? That blade? 200 stitches. Put a Band-Aid on it. Here's another fact. Tommy Pham will go. And he will go over pretty much anything. I know there's a universal list of reasons to go, but Tommy's got his own list. And it's a really, really long list. You know, like old Santa. Santa's got a list of everybody who's naughty and nice, and Tommy's got a list of reasons that he'll get nice. This was Tommy last month after Luke Voigt, a former teammate, collided with Tommy's current catcher at home. Quote, the way his hands hit him, it was dirty as bleep. I don't like it at all. The way his hands hit him in the face, it was dirty. If Luke wants to settle it, I get down really well anything Muay Thai whatever I've got a gym owner here who will let me use his facility so bleep him end of quote that's a dude talking about a former teammate running into a catcher on a play at home and he's telling you quote I get down really well end of quote and you know that's true you know it's true I know that's true. I'll tell you who knows it's true. Jock Peterson knows that's true. Because Pham got down on Jock really well before Friday's Giants-Reds game. It's one of the wildest stories I've ever seen.
And when I say he got down really well, I mean he found him in the outfield during warm-ups and slapped him upside his head. And I'm not even sure what's better. The shot to the melon or the reason for the shot to the melon because the shot was wild and the reason was insane. I'm going to let Peterson explain. But before I say this, or before I play this, I want to say, Jock Peterson talking about this incident is even funnier than the incident itself. And the incident itself is one of the funniest things ever. Tommy, no offense. Because Peterson's even-tone approach and his ability to talk about this with a straight face, like he's talking about going one for four at the plate, is incredible. We were in a fantasy league together. I put somebody, a player, on the injured reserve when they were listed as out and added another player. And then there was a text message in the group saying that I was cheating because I was stashing players on my bench. And then, uh, I don't know, I looked up the rules and sent a screenshot of the rules, how it says that when a player is ruled out, you're allowed to put them on the IR. And... uh, that's all I was doing. And then uh, it just so happened that he had a player, Jeff Wilson, who was out and he had him on the IR. And I said, you literally have the same thing on your team, on your bench. I guess he was in two leagues and in one of them, he was on the IR and one of them he wasn't. So maybe that was a confusion, but on the ESPN league we were in, it, it was listed as out. So it's like, it feels very similar to what I did. And that was basically all of it. There's not much more to it. Oh, there's more to it. There's more to it. But even if there wasn't more to it, it's already one of the best things ever. I mean, can you believe that guy just standing up there in front of the media and laying that out like that? No, that's between me and him. I mean, that was incredible that he said all that with a straight face. Like, I thought Tommy going upside his head was incredible, but that answer and explanation as to why Tommy went upside his head might be even more incredible. I mean, let me go back to that answer. When have you ever heard any athlete give any answer to any question like that? Ever. Most athletes, especially baseball players, who talk to the media every single day for six months straight, say as little as possible. Peterson is laying the entire thing out. Never mind, it's like one of the most absurd things ever. He's more than happy to tell you anything you need to know about one of the most absurd things ever. My man's got absolutely nowhere to be. We didn't ever had any uh, more contact. That only time we texted was in the uh, in the group text. And yeah, I mean, it was over a year ago. Yeah, it was a surprise. But no, there was no real argument. He kind of came up and said, I don't know, you remember from last year? And I was like, fantasy football? And he's like, yeah, I... Yeah. Where did he slap him? <laughs> in the, yep. <laughs> in the cheek. Yeah, what did you do? Nothing. There was a decent amount of people around and didn't get emotional. And don't think uh, violence is the answer, I guess you could say. So I kind of left the situation. And some other players were out there. And it wouldn't bench is clear, but it was batting practice. And uh, there was nothing more to it. Like I said, it was an unfortunate situation for over a fantasy football league rule. or wasn't a rule. And so, yeah. I don't think that violence is the answer. I agree with that. Especially FAM's violence.
I don't think getting my ass kicked was the answer. The only thing better than Peterson being happy to stand there forever and answer questions would have been if he was still rocking the pearls while he did it. Or if Tommy yanked the pearls off his neck. I don't know. I get the sense that to Tommy, it was not just about fantasy football. It was about the code. And not just about the code or even the baseball code, but rather the Tommy code. Too much money on the line. You know, so you look at it like, you know, there's a, there's a code. When my money, then you're going you're gonna to say some disrespectful shit. You know, there's a, there's a code to this. All right, all right, all right. First of all, you never want to F with somebody's money. That's a code of life. That's a universal code. Then there are certain people whose money you never want to F with. People like Charles Oakley. People like Tommy Pham. So when he says, hey, listen, there's actually a code here. He's not talking about a baseball code. He's talking about the Tommy Fam code. And the Fam code is, if I don't like you, I will punch you in the face. It's that simple. You know, quick digression, not that it matters, not that you really care, but I also have a code, the Rome code. The Rome code says I don't jack with Tommy Fam. I don't even know Tommy, and I don't jack with Tommy. Ever, period, for any reason. And believe me, the last thing I'm going to jack with Tommy over is his money. I'm just Tommy, my guy. Sir, can I call you my guy? My guy. Just as Jock did not want any of that Tommy Fam smoke, neither do I. I want to be very abundantly clear about that. We cool? Because if we are, I want to get back to the story. There's a code. I know, I get it. Respect. I don't know how much money was on the line in that league, but it better have been a lot because Tommy got suspended for three games. That shot to the dome cost him 111 grand. That must have been some league, man. I hope that was worth it. I mean, I guess on the one hand, you really can't put a price on a man's code, but that's a hell of a lot of jack to uphold the man's code. And if Tommy was pissed over how much he thinks that Jock cost him in that league, how pissed is he right now over the 111 Gur slap? There's a code to this. But based on what I know of Tommy, he'd probably say it is worth it. He didn't like Jock's roster moves, and he apparently really did not like Jock making fun of Tommy's team, the Padres, last year in that group chat. Jock broke that down. It's incredible. This is how this continues on. That's something else that Tommy was upset about. He was talking junk about my team, my actual team. I mean, I think we all know how it goes in fantasy football, right? You got a bunch of D-bags, players in chat sessions, talking junk about anything and everything. Yeah, well... If you're going to be in a league with Tommy, don't be talking junk about his team. But Jock, and it's the beauty of Jock, nothing was off limits. Jock was more than happy to break down that part of it too. 
including his reading of group chats and his showing the media the gif that he sent to the group chat. Tommy fan suspension before the game. Just what's your reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I saw that. And uh, I know what he said, and either it's true. There are uh, There was a lot of money involved in it. I did send a gif in the group chat that was making fun of the Padres. I, I got to be honest. I, I don't know whether or not to say this is the dumbest, most absurd thing ever or literally the greatest thing ever. I don't even know who I like more in this, although I don't condone violence. Tommy Pham reacting the way he did or Jock just continuing to hold court and lay it all out. I mean, it, it literally is the funniest thing I've heard in so long. Again, my man is speaking like he's testifying before Congress. Except what he's saying is, I did send a gif in the group chat that was making fun of the Padres. Like, like, like he's testifying before Congress. Alvin, you got to keep playing that. In the group chat, there was also some, there was more than one Padre. There was maybe four or five that uh, I'm kind of close with a couple of them. And it was supposed to be a friendly thing, just making fun of they were playing bad and just talking back and forth. And uh, yeah, I mean, he did not like that and responded, Jock, I don't know you well enough to make any jokes like this. So then I wrote back, I'm just trying to pull it up. So it's exact, um, was meant to be all fun and games. No hard feelings, sorry if you took it that way. And then about two weeks later, after like week four or five, uh, he ended up leaving the league and uh, there's been no communication since. But like I said, it, it is true. I did send a, uh, a GIF making fun of the Padres, and uh, if I hurt anyone's feelings, I apologize for that. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've watched that clip, and it gets better and better and funnier and funnier every single time. Peterson is like the funniest dude ever because he's not shutting it down. He's not saying, hey, guys... We've already covered this. He's laying it all out, including reading transcripts of the chat, reading it back for the court record. But what was this gift that was so heinous that it set Fam off and led him to quit that league and then smack a dude a half a year later to cost him three games and over 100 gur? What was it? What was that gift? Just ask Jock. He's more than happy to tell you. No, better yet, he will show you. It was like, I'll show you, I guess. It was like three weightlifters lifting, and um, that's what it was. Because they were a really good team, so it was kind of making fun of how they were uh, not playing well to make the playoffs with a very talented team. So, uh, I mean, I was teammates with some of them, and uh, yeah, it was supposed to be lighthearted, and I understand everyone takes jokes differently. So, like I said, I apologize for that. And looking to move past this and show up tomorrow with no distractions and try to help this team win a ballgame. My man. My man, take a victory lap for that. My man should be like Cal Ripken around the stadium, high-fiving all 55,000. That is absolutely incredible, the way he lays that out. That he somehow kept a straight face throughout the entire thing knowing that the dude who got all worked up over fantasy rules and a gif just cost himself 111 grand. And Jock's out here just laying it on, just keeps on laying it on. 
I love that he pulled up the GIF and then twist the knife in even further by explaining the GIF. Like, this was a really good team. And he was like, he was making fun of them underachieving, not playing well enough to make the playoffs, even though they had a really talented team with really high expectations. I'm not going to say that one player drilling another player over fantasy football rules from last year is the best thing to happen to baseball in a long time. I'm not going to say that. Yes, I will. That is the best thing to happen to baseball in a long, long time. Tommy V. Jock is better than the McGuire-Sosa home run race. This is pure electricity. I need more of it. Like, remember back in the day when those guys were jumping ship nightly and you would tune in to Sports Center every single night to see, did somebody leave the yard? How many do they have now? This is what I need. And this is what that is. I need other people to try Tommy. I'm not me. I'm not going to. I know better. You know why? I'm not dumb. I need other people to get infused with him. I need him to be upset about fantasy rules and lighthearted gifts and people who don't know him well enough to make jokes about him or his team. Because my man will go. Remember when he showed up in camp in March and declared 2022 his, quote, revenge tour? I thought he was talking about baseball. Turns out he was talking about fantasy football and gifts. And my man is more than living up to that. And I got to give it to Jock. I have to give it to Jock. Jock is cementing himself as an absolute legend for how he handled that. I got a question for you. Why is Old Trapper beef jerky like the best thing ever? Well, there is something to be said for a family business, which stands by quality and produces the world's finest beef jerky. Do not be fooled by other brands. All beef jerky is not the same. Make sure you choose Old Trapper, where you can actually see the quality right through their iconic Clearview packages. Every single bite of Old Trapper is tender, never tough, because they only use the best ingredients. From their lean strips of beef, seasoned with top-quality spices to their real wood-fired smoke, Old Trapper delivers quality in every single bite and... Old Trapper Jerky comes in four mouth-watering flavors. Old Fashioned, which is classic beef jerky flavor. Tender, smoky, and delicious. You've got Teriyaki with the yellow label, where Old Trapper turned the flavor down to 11. Hot and spicy, with a spice so nice you'll want to snack twice. Peppered, tender, seasoned beef covered in cracked pepper. And you can grab and go with a 4-ounce bag or load up with an 18-ounce bag. That way you've got enough for the entire team or fam or both. If you don't see it, ask for Old Trapper by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what is your beef? Keegan Murray is my guest. Keegan, really good to have you on. How are you? Doing good. How are you, how are you guys doing? Doing great. All right, so you've got an amazing journey to this point that I want to get into. But first, I want to ask you about the NBA Combine. What was that experience like for you? And then what did you take away from that in terms of conversations you had with teams? Yeah, it was cool for me just because my pre-drafts in Chicago and um, the combine was in Chicago as well so um, I was able to go back and forth I did the pro day um, did um, interviews with teams but I think the biggest thing I took away from it is um, you never know where you're going to go so uh, it doesn't matter what team you meet with um, just creating relationships with them for the future is um, a big priority for me um, and just creating relationships with all the teams. It's a good strategy. Keegan Murray is joining us. You know, I mentioned your journey, but when you play big-time college basketball and you have the college career that you've had, the expectation is that you had to have been highly recruited going all the way back. But for those who do not know, 
How tall were you when you entered high school, and what kind of attention were you getting as a player early on? Yeah, so my sophomore year of high school, I was about 5'10", um, really small, really skinny, um, pretty much a shot threes, and then I got up to 6'7", my senior year, um, about 180, so really small, and I had one division offer from Western Michigan, or Western Illinois, um, and then handful of division two offers and then two junior college offers and um ended up going the prep route and uh ended up my body ended up i was a late bloomer um my body didn't really grow until after i got out of high school and uh, my later stages of high school so it's been um been a process i wasn't a rated recruit i was 350 something in the country um so i mean that's just plays to a role of how hard I've worked over these last couple of years. No doubt. Keegan Murray, my guest. So I'm curious, like when you're going through that process and you believe in yourself and you're putting in the time and your family's all in, you have your brother, you have your father, everybody's doing everything they possibly can for all of you to be as good as you can. When the coaches were not interested or didn't believe in you the way you believed in you, did that confuse you or maybe did that just motivate you? I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, it was more motivation. Honestly, there's some days where I kind of just thought that I could play at that level, but I just wasn't getting the respect I thought I deserved. But for me, I just kept my head down and kept working because I know at some point my hard work would pay off. And I don't I don't know how it happened or when it happened, but I knew that was going to happen someday. Keegan Murray is my guest. I think that's key. I could do a whole hour on that. That like even when those around you or everybody on the outside does not believe in you, you did, and you just kept your head down, knowing that I don't know when it's going to pay off, but I know it will if I just keep grinding. You talked about the prep school route. You did do that, and then you started to play really, really well, and we're getting bigger and stronger. And then all of a sudden, schools are coming around, and Iowa included. Early on at Iowa, you and your brother were battling with Luke Garza in practice. What do you remember about that? And then how much did that impact your game and how you approached the game, those daily battles you had with him? Yeah, I know, especially in the offseason leading up to my freshman year, um, I always tried to out-rebound Luca on every single practice. And some days I would, some days I wouldn't. Um, but we were missing a bunch, a couple of our centers um, during the offseason. So my brother and I, we had to go up against Luca um, and the rest of the starters and um, we would take turns guarding Luca and I feel like that just made me better um, being able to guard their guys using quickness to get around them and different things like that. Keegan Murray is my guest. So then you more than triple, triple your scoring this past season. You were a finalist for the Wooden Award. So, I mean, you seem kind of nonplussed about this whole thing. Like you knew ultimately good things would happen, but how did it feel to go from not getting a ton of love to being a consensus all American in a pretty short period of time? Yeah, I think for me, I just took it one game at a time. Um, it didn't matter who we were playing. If we're playing the 350th ranked team in the country, if we're playing the fourth ranked team in the country, I just um, took every game um, like it was my last. And I just went out and tried to, put more effort in than the guy, guys across from me. Um, so I feel like a lot of that um, just came from getting my conditioning right, uh, focusing on my body. And um, for me, at some points this year, scoring wasn't the biggest thing for me. Because we, have other, we have other guys that can score on our team. So um, for me, I just try to bring a winning mentality to our team. Keegan Murray is joining us, getting ready for the NBA draft. Your father was talking about seeing you on the night of the draft lottery and said, quote, when I saw the picture, I said to your mom, man, just imagine 
three years ago, we were trying to figure out how we were going to pay for them to go to DME. That was the prep school. Yeah. So what's that mean to you that you haven't just validated your process and your belief in yourself, but you've delivered on your parents' support for you and their confidence in you and all the sacrifices they made for you? Yeah, they definitely, for me, they put in a lot of sacrifices financially. Um, they had to do different things to get the money and things like that, but they just wanted to help me on my dad drove me around on the Midwest to AU tournaments and things like that when you didn't have to. So um, for me, it's just a blessing to be in this position today and um, help them out from what they've given me for my childhood. We talked about your brother. Your brother is Chris, a twin brother. I'm curious, like, it's got to be all love, but if the two of you are growing up and you're both battling and you're playing a lot of one-on-one games, what were those games like? I mean, like all love and respect, or would they sometimes devolve into fights? Yeah, there's there's no love and respect um, when we're in between the lines on the basketball court. It's because we're both really competitive, and um, you had to be really creative to score because I knew all all his go-to moves, and he knew all my go-to moves. So, um, so sometimes those games would take a little while just because of, of the defense. But um, once we're done with that, um, got off the court um they're just respect and he's my best friend i'm his best friend so um it's just respect outside of the basketball court i like that keegan i would imagine that when you're in this place right now before the draft and in your life and you have all these new things happening all these doors opening up you're gonna have access to things that maybe you've never had access to before as an example story goes you recently had guacamole for the first time how did that go (laughs) for you what'd you think about that I, i thought it was pretty good uh I'm not really diverse in my my food um, that I eat, but um, tried that for the first time. Didn't think it was that bad. Um, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's like the only crazy. I want to say it's crazy, but it's the only thing I've really tried since I've been here. Dude, if guacamole is crazy, you're all, you're all good, man. You got nothing to worry about. Guac rules. Like, So what's your approach to nutrition? When you talk about I'm not really that diverse, I'm careful about what I put in my body. Like, What's your approach to nutrition? I'm curious. Yeah, I just – for me, I make I make I marinate a lot of chicken, um, season a lot of chicken. Um, pretty much eat chicken and rice a lot um, in my diet, just because it's clean and um, not dirty uh, per se. But uh, for me, I just try and eat fruits, um, just things that will help my body. Um, because in basketball, um, you want to put on the right weight. Um, you don't want to put on the on bad weight and excess fat and things like that so i just try and um keep my body use it as like a machine you know okay well it is your money maker body is temple like i've got uh he's a kid my son our son keegan's going to be a senior in high school and he plays baseball and the kid goes like six one buck fitty and we're trying to put some weight on him, and I keep telling yeah. him, and then, you know, he's smashing chocolate shakes. I'm like, no, dude, dude, the right <laughs> kind of weight, the right kind of weight. Yeah. Like when you eat the way you eat, what's it do for you? Is it is it good for energy recovery? Do you sleep better? Is it all of the above? How does it make you feel? I think, yeah, I think it's for both. I feel like if you put bad stuff in your body, you feel kind of sluggish, um, <laughs> either a couple a couple hours before the day after. But yeah, I just think. Because I I've been through that phase where like you think the chocolate shakes or whatever are gonna are gonna get you right, um, but you just feel sluggish. And uh, I've learned from that, and I've kind of learned, um, and I'm still learning um, throughout these years. 
Preach, man. You're so right. And as an elite young athlete, if you feel that and you feel sluggish the day of or the day after, you can only imagine what an old man like me feels like the day of and the day <laughs> after with the wrong fuel. Man, you are so right. Really quickly, what do you want NBA teams to know about you as a player and a person? What are they getting if they pick you? A winning mentality. Um, for starters, I feel like um, I've won throughout my career and um, just bringing the right mindset to the organization. Um, and uh, I'm a guy that's really diverse in his skill set, um, long, um, athletic, knows his way around the court. Um, and I give 100% effort, do all the dirty work and things like that. So uh, for me, I feel like I'm able to contribute to an NBA team um, and establish a winning culture within that organization. I like it. What they're getting is a pro player and a pro mindset. Keegan Murray, former Iowa forward, consensus All-American, a first-team All-Big Ten player, and a Carl Malone Award winner as the best power forward in college basketball. Keegan, great to have you on. Listen, hopefully once you get settled, you find out where you're going to live and work. I'd love to run it back and talk to you again. Appreciate the conversation. Good. Yeah, appreciate you guys. You ever think this? I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Hey, listen, don't kid yourself. There is no such thing as a good reason for not buckling up. If you have used any of these excuses or any others, you are putting yourself at risk of injury or death. In 2020, more than 10,800 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 28% of all people killed in motor vehicle crashes that year. No matter what kind of a car you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still need to buckle up. That goes for when you ride in taxis and you use ride-sharing services as well. Law enforcement are on the lookout and they're writing tickets, so why take the risk? Seatbelts save lives. So do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, day or night. Click it, don't risk it. Click it or take it. Paid for by NHTSA. All right, so quickly, the Lakers have their new head coach. And he hasn't even started yet. Not really. And yet he's already stacking wins. He's been so good right out the gate. I'm thinking they might want to clear space in front of the crypt for a new statue. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. The new guy's already better than Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson? Yes, I said it. The team announced on Friday that Darvin Ham would be their new head coach. And if you are not familiar with Ham, or the only knowledge you have comes from him shattering that backboard against North Carolina back in the day, you better get up to speed. Because this guy can coach now. He's been an assistant for more than a decade. He's coached the likes of Kobe and Giannis. People around the league rave about his ability to communicate and hold guys accountable, as well as develop young players, all things the Lakers have to have. But here's why they might be looking to hoist a banner and clear space for a new statue on Figueroa. It's this report from Mark Stein. According to Buzz in NBA coaching circles over the weekend, Ham has likewise been promised the autonomy to pick his coaching staff and is said to have received assurances that Lakers senior advisor Kurt Rambis will not be a regular presence in coaching meetings like he was with Vogel. Holy crap, that is massive. Do you know how huge that is? This is the same crew that had a great look at Ty Lue 
and then jammed him so hard when it came to the details of his contract and his staff that they lost him. The same dysfunctional crew that had a look at Monty Williams. Imagine being so arrogant as to try to jam Ty Lue or Monty Williams on a contract. Do you have the arrogance you'd have to possess to let both those guys go? Not one or the other, but both. If you can imagine that, that arrogance, your last name probably is Rambus, which brings me to the next part of the Rambi factor. Because after they tried to screw Lou and Williams, they did hire Frank Vogel. And then they dictated to him who had to be on his staff. And all Vogel did in his first year was lead that team to an NBA championship. And they still did not let up on him. Where did that get him? A one-year extension. How big of them? He wins a championship. They extend him one year and make sure that Kurt Rambis is still sitting in on coaching meetings. And let's be clear about this too, right? Let's be clear about what that is. That's not like bringing in, I don't know, Larry Brown and putting him off to the side there and letting him weigh in on a few things. That's not some cagey veteran coach with a fistful of rings as a head coach, showing up and maybe dropping a few pearls of wisdom. It's one of the worst coaches in NBA history, crashing your coaching meetings and giving advice and maybe even telling you what to do. Imagine that in any other workplace. Imagine you've just won, I don't know, the sales contest. And you're driving around in that Cadillac Eldorado. As you all know, first prize but Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody- the dude who got fired for coming in last and never making a single sale is now sitting in your meetings telling you how to handle the oh-so-valuable Glengarry leads. Like, you're Ricky Roma, and you've just kicked ass, and old Shelly Levine is coming in to tell you how to do your job. That's what Rambis and the Lakers did to Vogel. But Darvin Ham knows better. And he had the wisdom to say, oh, hell no. To hell with that. You do that, and I'm not coming. And he had that kind of clout. The Lakers had it back to hell down. They had to acquiesce. Not only that, but he gets to pick his own staff. And why the hell wouldn't he? Other than he's the Lakers coach, and they think that it's their job to pick the coach's staff. In any other job, that is not a remarkable concession by the team. You hire a head coach, and then you let him staff it up as he sees fit. But not the Lakers. That clown show in the front office is now on its sixth coach in 11 years. And for good reason. Because they do bullcrap like that. They somehow always thought they knew better than the coaches that they were hiring. But not Ham. Ham's laying down the law from the outset as well. So... Is this the Lakers finally coming to their senses? Doubt it. Finally. Or maybe they did finally realize that they weren't going to get anybody worth a damn with all the idiotic conditions they keep putting in place. And they sure as hell weren't going to get ham setting it up like that. You ever think you'd see the day where the Lakers needed Darvin Ham more than Darvin Ham needed the Lakers? Well, it's true. Because Ham would have gone ham on the Lakers if they tried to pull that nonsense with him. Just as they did two other great coaches, Lou and Williams. And they are both great coaches. 
Ham is smart as hell. He's tough as hell. And he knows he's walking right into hell. That is a tough, tough gig. A team coming off its worst season ever. Getting crushed under the weight of Russell Westbrick's contract. Westbrick. Not to mention Westbrick's shot selection and attitude. He's going to have to figure out how to make that all work. Or figure out a way to dump Russ without giving up extra assets in the process. A practical impossibility in order to win games. But he is starting off the win. A nice win. Let's be real. Just blocking the Ramby is not going to keep Anthony Davis healthy. I don't think anything can. And it's not going to turn Russell Westbrook back into Russell Westbrook. But it's a good start. Just hear me when I say this. Darvin Ham is already better than Phil Jackson. Because at least Darvin Ham knows that Kurt Rambis sucks. And that Phillip never even came to that realization. Phillip probably still does not understand that. So, I like the hire. I do not like their roster. And the organization is still dysfunctional as hell. But it did just get a little bit better. Now, stay the hell out of this guy's way and let him do his job. Because when you have a puppet on the bench and the owner's best friends are pulling the strings... The players know this, and they will not respect the coach at all. A ton of work to do, Jeannie, but it's the first good decision you've made in quite some time. Now let's not take one step forward and 18 steps back. I think you got a good one. Let him do his thing. Let him coach. Let him do what you hired him to do. Andrew Chekets is my guest. I've said this a number of times. Coach, you know me, I I don't root ever for anybody except for my kids, my horses, and my college. So I'm going to say our and we. What are our initial impressions of Texas State? Well, they're good, and it's you know kind of they're kind of similar to us. You know, they they ran through their conference, they won the 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 regular season championship there. They've you know they've got some speed, they've got some powers. They've hit eight some power. They've hit eighty homers. Uh, on the year, they've uh, they've got a big arm on Friday, and um, they strike guys out. So uh, kind of similar style of play. Um, we might have maybe a little more West Coast offense in us than them. In terms of the run game, we run a little bit more, but uh, but very similar. And, and, and they're talented, and they're good, and and uh, I think old, older like us. So it should be a good battle. UC Santa Barbara head baseball coach Andrew Checkets is my guest. Listen, we. We're not supposed to run through the Big West Conference. We lost our two top starting pitchers from last year, and they're playing pro ball right now. We lost a couple of our best infielders from last year. So when you looked at the roster at the start of the season, what kind of thoughts did you have, and what were your expectations? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I, I thought we were going to be great. I was concerned about it and concerned that we didn't have you know, enough front-end pitching, and um, you know, we had some really some, – key offensive parts leave and um you know with McGreevy going in the first round and moving on and Boone who'd been such a big winner for us um you know moving on to pro ball we had we had a lot of innings over 200 innings to cover so um that the kids have done a great job you know we've had guys you know step in and fill in some of those roles we had a couple like everybody has a couple key injuries we lost a, a, a player to uh, decide they didn't want to play that's one of our better players and um so going into it, you know, you, you think you're 
you're, you're not going to be great. And frankly, I, I picked us to finish fourth in the preseason conference poll. Um, and we, I think we only had one first place vote that wasn't for me. So um, the guys have really done, really done a nice job of, uh, of playing and figuring out ways to win games. And it hasn't always been clean, but they've, they've been able to work through it. So when did you first get the sense that we could be special this year, potentially? Well, yeah, I mean, we didn't play great early. We were okay. We, you know, we've had some back end of the bullpen issues at times um, that, you know, made you a little bit uh, concerned and offensively struggled early. So I would say it was probably midway through where we started to play well. And then, we, you know, we ran through that gauntlet of, we had Cal Poly, Long Beach, Irvine, back-to-back to back weekends. And, um, you know, we played really well. I mean, we played, you know, some of our best baseball um, against some of the better competition uh, in the conference. And I, I think when you're doing that and you're, you know, you're at your best when your best is needed, as John Wooden would say, um, you feel like the, the guys are, you know, in a good place to be able to make a run. Andrew Checkets is my guest. So Cal State Bakersfield coach Jeremy Beard said, quote, that's a World Series team right there. Hopefully they go all the way to Omaha and win that thing. And to quote, I'm curious, what's your reaction when you hear that from him? Pressure. Yeah, that's all I felt. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, pressure. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Uh, no pressure. But you know, we'll try and represent the conference. We think the, the conference is uh, underrated. You know, we had some teams at the bottom end that struggled that I think sometimes can skew our RPI and um, but we think the you know the top three or four comp- teams in the conference you know would have a chance to beat just about anybody out there and have a chance to win some games in a, a postseason environment. And so I feel like we're flying the flag for the Big West and looking forward to our opportunity. L- listen, speaking of the Big West, I mean I was there back in the day, so I know. But it's a program that did not win a conference title in 30 years. Now you've got two and three years. How do you explain the transformation? How have you pulled that off? Well, it starts with the kids. I mean, you've got to have players. I think we, you know, we recruit aggressively and um, we try and identify, you know, kids that are good fits here, not not just from a baseball standpoint, but from an academic standpoint and from a, you know, mentality and work ethic standpoint. And when we've 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 been able to, you know, land some good players. We, you know, Michael McGreevy and Shane Bieber and Dylan Tate and you know, those guys are first rounders and big leaguers or future big leaguers and. Um, so you've got you've got to have the horses to be able to be good, and I think it starts there. And and we've got a lot to offer. You know, you know, you went here, weather, location, academics, um, the best place in the world to live, in my opinion. And you know, we're fortunate to be able to to show off an amazing university to to kids, and and we end up getting a lot of good quality kids, and you put them in 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 a in a competitive environment, um, and it seems like a the success has come from that. So, Best place ever, and a hell of a coach, too. Listen, you mentioned Shane Bieber. Today's his birthday. No way you and I talk and don't talk about Bieber at some point. We've talked in the past about his journey from walk-on to Cy Young Award winner. So when you're recruiting, what does it mean to be able to point to him as an example of what can happen for a player at UCSB? Yeah, and we... we... <laughs> We've had a lot. We've had a lot of really good stories like that. You know, the Dylan Tate. He's the first picture taken in the draft, and fifteen and not highly recruited. And Mike Vu, you know, who's a little bit under the radar, two-way guy. Um, so yeah, we we tried to hang our hat on the development side of things, but it, you know, it starts with the evaluation. And you know, Shane's a great example of somebody that wanted to be a gaucho. Um, 
he didn't quite fall in our lap. We, you know, we, we saw him and, and, and recruited him. We just didn't offer him a scholarship and we gave him a, you know, an opportunity and he made the most of it. Um, but you know, he's a, he's a great example of somebody that wanted to be here and had, had all of the intangibles and maybe it was just a little bit of a late bloomer physically. So finally, how do you approach the tournament itself? Like it's your third straight trip and fifth time in the last seven years. In terms of the experience, it's got to be valuable to you because you've been there before. But what about the players? Like what's the the approach and mentality that you try and impart upon them? Is it just another game? Or are you looking for them to dial it up? Is I mean, how do you approach it? What's the conversation like? Yeah, I've tried to learn from the successes and failures of, you know, doing it different ways. I've had teams I think in fifteen we, we hosted an Elsinore and we had you know, that was a really good team. We had Tate on Friday and Beaver on Sunday, a fifth rounder on Tuesday and um and we went two and out in that tournament. Um and I you know, I think I had them kinda of wound up a little bit too tight and I was too tight and um I think the hosting off site I was concerned about that going well and worried about you know a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have been worried about and I think that affected how we played. And then in 16, um, when we went out to to um, Vanderbilt the night before practice, we played a you know an over the line tournament, skip practice, and just played the tournament. And I said, I want you guys to go play like that. I want you to just go for it and let it fly. And you guys are running around the field like you're playing with a ball. And and that group gravitated to that and ended up playing like that and making that run. Um, and then in 19, we went up to Stanford. I think um, you know a little bit. It was more felt like more of a celebration parade. We'd won that first conference championship. We just couldn't get the genie back in the bottle in terms of being able to get refocused on trying to win that tournament. So this year is different. We, you know, we were felt like we had a chance to clinch um, early and start focusing on getting ready. And so right now we're just really trying to make sure that we're prepared um, and that we're going to make a run and, and win that tournament as opposed to what it felt like in '19, which was. Um, just just kind of celebrating the conference championship. Love it. Gauchos, 43-12 and 12 overall, 27-3 in conference. They are the number three seed in the Stanford Regional. No way we start this without me checking in with Andrew Checkets. Checks, great season so far. Good luck. Keep it going. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Really My guy, Andrew Checkets. Lucky to have him. So anyway, I hope you had a good weekend. Hope you got a time to kind of relax, rest, recover, because there is no more relaxing around here. Not now. It is beyond go time in the jungle. We are on a straight sprint to smack off 28. 24 days away. 17 shows. This show is into its last hour. So if you're not ready to hit the ground running today or now, I'm not sure what the hell you're waiting for. Right now is the time to get up in here. R.I.P. Rip a golden ticket. Make an RSVP call. Stir some bleep up. And after Alvy's epic promo drop on Friday, I don't know how any of you aren't ready to run through a wall and then just eat the concrete rubble. In fact, I'm going to do you a big favor. For anybody who missed it, here is Alvin's latest masterpiece a.k.a. the official Smack Off 28 promo. Here we are in three, two, one. 
If everyone's strategy on how to win one of these things involves copying the dude who won the year before, then I just want to say I look forward to the triumphant return of crank jokes in Smack Off 28. Smack Off 28. Smack Jim Rich Flores' Twitter handle, at Dick Flowers. I just find that really interesting since I gave both of those things to Brad and Corona's wife. This is the jungle national holiday. We wait all year for it. If my wife were into stupid, floppy-eared things with bad breath and a retractable penis, I'd hook her up with Paul's dog. Rebuttals in a can. I bite his ass off every day of the week. Did that dog call in on her own, or did Rick and Buffalo just hand his phone to his prettiest daughter? Smack off number 28, Friday, June 24th. I'm going to go to the phones, and we are going to unleash hell. H-E double hockey sticks. Bring a Bible and a seatbelt. Jeff in Richmond. Jim! Thank you, Jim! For 27 smack off. I can't stand any of these guys. And for being a very best friend, Jim! Rick in Buffalo. Jeff's so fat, he makes Andy Reid look like Karen Carpenter. Now stay down, hillbilly boy, before I slap all that red off that big fat neck. Vic. Stop acting like you're some kind of hard-ass, Rick. I could super glue you to the front of my car and turn you into a hood ornament. Except your big-ass nose would block my view of the road. Caleb. And Vic, his take on me was that I'm well-mannered and sober. Dude, after I win the 5K, you can go get your shine box burning. Bro, we're not doing that this year. Burning. Dude, what did I tell you? You had your chance already and you blew it. Mark in Boston. How do you think Caleb's going to perform today? This guy gets less action than Rome's bocce court. Gino. I think we really need to give this guy a pass. He lives in Michigan. It takes 30 minutes to thaw out your card. Mark in Hollywood. That is so, Wisco man, his idea of a dating app is going to a cow field and tipping over one cow left if he doesn't like her, one cow right if he does. Urgh, Captain Mark. Try for pastries out here, cuz. I just ripped your crown, fat Adam Silver. Left. Mark, the only thing fat about me is my wallet from winning this thing so many times, right? I mean, did I miss the memo that it was opposite day or something? If so, you're really handsome, have a totally normal hairline, and teeth that are proportionate to the size of your head. Benny in Wisco. Last time Sean went to a grocery store, three expectant mothers saw him and offered up their special parking spot. The Cablin Asian. Sean, what's going on? How are you? Uh, fat, evidently, Jim. That's what I am. Jeff in Southfield. Sean, I never knew the Michelin Man had a twin brother, Sean. You're what happens when Tina Yothers loses her hair. Jeff, good job Googling bald and fat jokes. Jeff, you're as useful as a knitted condom. Brad in Corona. If you ever get a follow from Sean Pendergast, he's probably more interested in your kidneys than your friendship at this point. Chris in Southeastern Wisco. The scoreboard reads me, 30 rack calls, you one. It's a Dynasty clone. I've got a stack of golden tickets. Got to play your way in. Looks like snacks. Eight. Randrew Bogus. Are we not going to have me, the chicken man, on a self-gloss reel because of some technicality? What kind of bleep is that? <laughs> Jimmy, my man. I just can't wait to start smacking off. Come on. Yeah. What's my name? You puke. It's winner take all. Five grand and the crown of king of smack. Yeah, no points for second place. Okay, Jim. That's all I got. 
Yeah, right. I'm just getting warmed up. Romy, I don't need to be the main event on this card. I just need five rounds to give the people, the ladies, what they want. And I promise you, your rubber band will thank you. Ben Simmons wearing a shooting sleeve thinks you need to settle the hell down. Tell me Let me find out. That. I'm about to blow this Jim, bag Jim, Jim, how's my double, 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 double audio, audio, audio? Clean it up. The smack off is invitation only. It is for the very best of the best. I'm the best there ever was and the best there ever will be. I kind of agree with them, you know? If you take away Sean's five titles, Doc Mike and I have Brady two, JT the Brick, Jeff Nicola, Jeffrey Richmond, Vic Mark still. Jim, I Ray Craig's apartment is such a dirty mess that his Roomba ran away! Dan and DC, J.C. Bowie, Raider Mike Kerwin, Randall, David St. Louis, Rachel Sarah, Shade, Danica Sudi, Flash and with Jerome and Nashville, Toby Newton, Carlin Rosie. Huge version of the Tyco train set I got when I was 10 for Christmas comes rumbling out of nowhere. Come on. The Grumpet Rouse, the Axe, the Bowling Ball, Mike Man, the Dookie, the Raider Mack, Cleveland, Joe Lincoln, Mac, and Caleb in Green Bay, then yeah, Mike, you are the best that ever was. You should be proud of that. Friday, June 24. Fourth, invite only, winner take all. Just rattling off these people makes me wish I had ten middle fingers. Double side, bitch. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Oh! No tipping, tipping. Screw all of you equally and super hard. Have any fun yet? Smack off, 28, June 24th. You've got your date. Go get paid. Come on! That was even better the second time around. That was amazing. Absolutely amazing. A Ricky in Seattle, no offense, bro. Come on. But that's how you cut a promo. The little dude outdoes, uh, does himself every single time and did again. Alvin, incredible. He pressed play on that epic promo on Friday, and then as expected, all hell broke loose around here, which is exactly what I wanted to happen, exactly what I expected to happen. And it all overshadowed another big event in Smack Off season. Like, I feel like I could just roll from that. But that's not even the point. The point that I'm trying to make is there is something new. Stuck Nuts. Annual odds. Stuck Nut. A.K.A. Stephen Houston. A.K.A. The dude who knows more about this program than I do. He handicaps the Smack Off field every single year. And every single year when he does that, and again, it's unofficial. It's unofficial. You can't go to his site and get down and get action and get paid. It's unofficial. It's one man's opinion. But every single year when he does this, the participants get bent. And they get butthurt about the odds. About how disrespected they all are. Like Rick and Buffalo. He somehow got even more red-assed than usual after the nut Dropped odds back in 2019. I saw Stucknut posted his smack off odds the other night. And obviously that dope knows nothing about the show. He's got those two Canadian lames going off at 10 to 1. I wouldn't touch those hacks at 100 to 1. And I couldn't believe Caleb in Green Bay opened at 5 to 1. That's a bigger stretch than that doughboy trying to squeeze into a pair of size 48 Levi's. Maybe you should just bring your mom on again this year, fat boy. And she can apologize for being such a failure as a parent. Rick and everybody else who does not come in near the top, at least on when it comes to the odds themselves, get butt hurt. Listen, you can't even play. It's just one dude's opinion. It's not like there's real money going back and forth here. There is no sports book, at least to my knowledge, that has these odds. In the past, yes, but no, in no year recently. So the odds have no bearing 
on how I or the XR4TI judge the event. It's just one guy's opinion. Now, his opinion matters because he's archived every single word ever uttered on this show for the past quarter century, but it's just one guy's opinion. Like, I can't handicap the field myself because that would be a gigantic conflict of interest. What I'm saying is nothing is more subjective than these odds. One man's opinion. Granted, it is an informed opinion because he knows more about the show than even I do, and I came up with the show, and I host the show. But still subjective. It's what makes it so great. Everybody getting so bent and butthurt about it. So let's see what we have this year. I've given you the background. Let's look at the odds. No surprises at the very top. Your SmackOff 28 favorite is the GOAT. Brad in Corona, the defending champ, the BIC, 2-1, to one, to snag his record seventh strap. If you think the hype is in any way overblown, and you still, for whatever reason, do not get it, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. As Bradley himself reminded everybody when he rolled right in here out of the blue this past Friday. Hey, listen, I'll get out, but I got a quick request for this year's smack off before I go. Can we update the places that people live in? I feel like a lot of the guys on the show aren't really living in the cities we associate them with anymore. And I think to be fair, we just need to update everyone and make people known by where they actually live. Like Vic in NoCal is really Vic in Baja. Mark in Boston is really Mark in Florida. And as you know, Jim, Cal in Vegas recently relocated to heaven. R.I.P. Cal. Stugnut didn't post the odds of you winning this year, but they're the same as they were last year. All right. Happy Memorial Day, Jimbo. I'll see you on the 24th. This dude. <laughs> this dude. <laughs> the standard is the standard. And standard over feelings. But that's what you have to beat. If you want to claim the five gur, Brad might be the best to ever do it. And by might be the best, he is. He is. But he is beatable. He is. Left in Laguna has proven this multiple times, which is why the three-time champ is three to one, according to Stucknut, to reclaim his crown after winning it in 2020. Yo, Left, what up? Where are you at? So, no surprises at the top. Those are the two to beat. But things do get interesting quickly after that. Shawnee, the Cowboy Nation, has the third best odds per stock nut at 4-1. to one. Well deserved. Shawnee has won the event five times. And he has stormed back from a decade-plus jungle hiatus to finish with three straight top tens in the past three smack-offs, including a third-place podium finish last year. Even just his presence in Alvi's promo, in the promo, put Jeff in Southfield on tilt over the weekend on Twitter. Jeff tweeted, quote, In the smack-off promo, Sean accuses me of plagiarism, which is 0% true, and I hate that with 1,000 knives of fire. He then proceeds to plagiarize a knitted condom joke, which has been recycled so many times, it's a public domain joke. Ironic bull bleep. End quote. That's what I like to see. 
And Jeff, it's nice to see you coming around on social, but get up in here, my dude. In fact, delete the app. Pick up the damn phone. After Sean, you've got Caleb in Green Bay and Vic and NoCal both at 5-1. to one. Vic will be bent because Vic's won it all before and Caleb has never done better than third. Again, one man's opinion. Stucknut. I don't know if Stucknut's got a system. I don't know if Stucknut's got analytics to back it up. Just his system or his opinion. Benny and Wisco may not be happy either. It's 6-1. to one. I see value there, yo. I see value of Benny at 6-1. to one. Second, again, no money, just for fun. Remember how when the big head would come in on Friday and I'd say for entertainment purposes only, that's what this is. Again, there'd be an enormous conflict of interest if I had anything to do with the odds because I'm deciding who wins. Uh, hello, then I would get down and get paid. Then the fix would be in and my career would be over. For entertainment purposes only. Anyway, Benny... Benny is probably pissed because he's got the second best odds in his own state, even though he finished ahead of Caleb in the last two smackoffs. Also at six to one. <laughs> you think anybody's pissed? The RIB. No way. And part of me thinks that the nuts gotta be trolling this guy hard, right? Rick and Buffalo at six to one. Always a very popular pick amongst the clones. But six to one. Rick, reaction. Mark in Hollywood has won it all, but not since 2013. He is seven to one, just ahead of the aforementioned Jeff and Southfield and Mark in Boston, who are both eight to one. And then you get some pretty interesting numbers. I Frady and another former champ, Jeff and Richmond, nine to one. I afraid he's tough to, uh, tough to nail down. He's got a very fascinating life, and it's when he can make it in, he will make it in, but he can't always make it in. I'll have a profile on him later on in the week. I should probably alert him to the fact that the smack off is coming up on the 24th, which I've not done yet, and my man may not even know. Jeff in Richmond's got to know. He's 9-1. to one. They have actually both won it before. Another former champ, Mike in Indy, 12 to 1. It's a risk because he didn't call last year. But if he does, Mikey, creme de la creme, Mikey, at plus 1,200, that'd be something. That's a good theoretical bet. As of right now, for golden ticket holders, they are by definition long shots. They're the qualifiers at Wimbledon. However, Boris Becker once qualified and got in and won it all and then went bankrupt. Anyway, they're the amateurs at the Masters, but they're not pushovers. It doesn't mean they can't post high numbers or low. 18 to 1 on Chris in Southeast Wisco. 18 to 1. Plus 1,800 on a Dynasty Clones. That's pretty interesting. But not as interesting as James in Portland at 25 to 1. Jimmy, my man. That would have been an amazing bet about a month ago. In fact, I got to think that the nut, I'm not sure what goes into his process, but I don't think that he would have been 25 to 1 a month ago. He's lost some steam, but if he can reclaim it and get hot at the right time, 
he'd be dangerous. However, not as dangerous, though, as the jungle's biggest lightning rod right now, Paul in Buffalo's dog. The pooch is also 25 to 1. I'm going to tell you something right now. That number seems to jump out. It doesn't seem right, but again, I'm impartial. I do not have a horse. I do not have a dog in this race. I'm just here to dump a little gasoline on that fire. Alvin's epic promo and these odds help with that every single year. So, Alvin, great job again. Nut, Steve-O, great job. Clones, they've done their jobs. Now you do yours. You've got 17 more shows to get it done. So get to it. Get busy. Get to work. Shoot your shot. Let's go to line one. Paul's dog. Hello, Paul's dog. Hello, uh, Rim Room. Spucknut. Sounds like that time where I tried to eat a bag of peanuts and one got stuck in my throat. Anyway... Thank you for the two-segment player profile. That's two for me. Of course I'm polarizing. Half of the clones like me, and the other half love me. For those one or two haters, this is for you. Do. Do host. Do host, Mitch. Do host, Mitch. Do hostage for God. Do hostage for God. Do hostage for God. Oh, this hostage, you sad. That's right. Paul's dog is trilingual. My grandfather was a German shepherd. Hmm. Funny you should mention Paul's dog merch. Right just opened a store on Petsy. Strangest thing, my first customer was Brandon Corona. He ordered the personalized Paul's dog underoos with my face on the front and my butthole on the back. Sadly, we didn't have his size, so we had to make a custom pair in Rextra, 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 Rextra small. I did throw in a complimentary jar of peanut butter, sample size. He also told me that Mrs. Brandon Corona suffers from a severe case of jungle Tourette's. For every time Brandon asks if he can take the paper bag off his head, put on his socks, and they can wrestle with their lights on for a change, she says to him, uh, let's not get into that just yet. Roar! Brandon Corona being the Mona Lisa and Paul's dog just shoved cake in your face. Rough me, rum route. Wow. That dog's 25 to 1? Good night now! 